Towards the end of her day in London, Mrs. Drover went round to her shut-up house to look for several things she wanted to take away. Some belonged to herself, some to her family, who were by now used to their country life. It was late August. It had been a steamy, showery day. At the moment, the trees down the pavement glittered in an escape of humid yellow afternoon sun. Against the next batch of clouds already piling up ink-dark, broken chimneys and parapets stood out. In her once familiar street, as in any unused channel, an unfamiliar queerness had silted up. A cat wove itself in and out of railings, but no human eye watched Mrs Drover's return. Shifting some parcels under her arm, she slowly forced round her latchkey in an unwilling lock, then gave the door which had warped a push with her knee. Dead air came out to meet her as she went in. The staircase window having been boarded up, no light came down into the hall. But one door she could just see stood ajar, so she went quickly through into the room and unshuttered the big window in there. Now the prosaic woman, looking about her, was more perplexed than she knew by everything that she saw, by traces of her long former habit of life. The yellow smoke stain up the white marble mantelpiece, the ring left by a vase on the top of the escritoire, the bruise in the wallpaper where, on the door being thrown open widely, the china handle had always hit the wall. The piano, having gone away to be stored, had left what looked like claw marks on its part of the parquet. Though not much dust had seeped in, each object wore a film of another kind, and, the only ventilation being the chimney, the whole drawing room smelled of the cold hearth. Mrs Drover put down her parcels on the escritoire and left the room to proceed upstairs. The things she wanted were in a bedroom chest. She had been anxious to see how the house was. The part-time caretaker she shared with some neighbours was away this week on his holiday, known to be not yet back. At the best of times, he did not look in often, and she was never sure that she trusted him. There were some cracks in the structure left by the last bombing, on which she was anxious to keep an eye. Not that one could do anything. A shaft of refracted daylight now lay across the hall. She stopped dead and stared at the hall table. On this lay a letter addressed to her. She thought first, then the caretaker must be back. All the same, who, seeing the house shuttered, would have dropped a letter in at the box? It was not a circular, it was not a bill. And the post office redirected to the address in the country Everything for her that came through the post. The caretaker, even if he were back, did not know she was due in London today. Her call here had been planned to be a surprise, so his negligence in the manner of this letter, leaving it to wait in the dusk and the dust, annoyed her. Annoyed, she picked up the letter, which bore no stamp. But it cannot be important, or they would know... She took the letter rapidly upstairs with her, without a stop to look at the writing, till she reached what had been her bedroom, where she let in light. The room looked over the garden and other gardens. 
the sun had gone in. As the clouds sharpened and lowered, the trees and rank lawns seemed already to smoke with dark. Her reluctance to look again at the letter came from the fact that she felt intruded upon, and by someone contemptuous of her ways. However, in the tenseness preceding the fall of rain, she read it. It was a few lines. Dear Kathleen, you will not have forgotten that today is our anniversary, and the day we said. The years have gone by at once slowly and fast. In view of the fact that nothing has changed, I shall rely upon you to keep your promise. I was sorry to see you leave London, but was satisfied that you would be back in time. You may expect me, therefore, at the hour arranged. Until then, K. Mrs. Drover looked for the date. It was two days. She dropped the letter onto the bed springs, then picked it up to see the writing again. Her lips, beneath the remains of lipstick, beginning to go white. She felt so much the change in her own face that she went to the mirror, polished a clear patch in it and looked at once urgently and stealthily in. She was confronted by a woman of 44, with eyes starting out under a hat brim that had been rather carelessly pulled down. She had not put on any more powder since she left the shop where she ate her solitary tea. The pearls her husband had given her on their marriage hung loose round her now rather thinner throat, slipping in the V of the pink wool jumper her sister knitted last autumn as they sat round the fire. Mrs Drover's most normal expression was one of controlled worry, but of assent. Since the birth of the third of her little boys, attended by a quite serious illness, she had had an intermittent muscular flicker to the left of her mouth. But in spite of this, she could always sustain a manner that was at once energetic and calm. Turning from her own face as precipitately as she had gone to meet it, she went to the chest where the things were, unlocked it, threw up the lid and knelt to search. But as rain began to come crashing down, she could not keep from looking over her shoulder at the stripped bed on which the letter lay. Behind the blanket of rain, the clock of the church that still stood struck six. With rapidly heightening apprehension, she counted each of the slow strokes. The hour arranged. My God, she said. What hour? How should I... After 25 years... The young girl talking to the soldier in the garden had not ever completely seen his face. It was dark. They were saying goodbye under a tree. Now and then, for it felt from not seeing him at this intense moment, 
as though she had never seen him at all. She verified his presence for these few moments longer by putting out a hand, which he each time pressed, without very much kindness, and painfully, onto one of the breast buttons of his uniform. That cut of the button on the palm of her hand was, principally, what she was to carry away. This was so near the end of a leave from France that she could only wish him already gone. It was August 1916. Being not kissed, being drawn away from and looked at, intimidated Kathleen till she imagined spectral glitters in the place of his eyes. Turning away and looking back up the lawn, she saw, through branches of trees, the drawing room window alight. She caught a breath for the moment when she could go running back there into the safe arms of her mother and sister and cry, What shall I do? What shall I do? He has gone. Hearing her catch her breath, her fiancé said without feeling, Cold? You're going away such a long way. Not as far as you think. I don't understand. You don't have to, he said. You will. You know what we said. But that was, suppose you, uh, I mean, suppose. I shall be with you, he said, sooner or later. You won't forget that. You need do nothing but wait. Only a little more than a minute later, she was free to run up the silent lawn. Looking in through the window at her mother and sister, who did not for the moment perceive her, she already felt that unnatural promise drive down between her and the rest of all humankind. No other way of having given herself could have made her feel so apart, lost and forsworn. She could not have plighted a more sinister troth. Kathleen behaved well when, some months later, her fiancé was reported missing, presumed killed. Her family not only supported her but were able to praise her courage without stint because they could not regret, as a husband for her, the man they knew almost nothing about. They hoped she would, in a year or two, console herself. And had it been only a question of consolation, things might have gone much straighter ahead. But her trouble... Behind just a little grief was a complete dislocation from everything. She did not reject other lovers, for these failed to appear. For years, she failed to attract men. And with the approach of her thirties, she became natural enough to share her family's anxiousness on this score. She began to put herself out, to wonder... And at 32, she was very greatly relieved to find herself being courted by William Drover. She married him, and the two of them settled down in this quiet, arboreal part of Kensington. In this house, the years piled up. Her children were born, and they all lived till they were driven out by the bombs of the next war. Her movements as Mrs Drover were circumscribed, and she dismissed any idea that they were still watched. As things were, dead or living, the letter writer sent her only a threat. Unable for some minutes to go on kneeling with her back exposed to the empty room, 
Mrs. Drover rose from the chest to sit on an upright chair whose back was firmly against the wall. The despotude of her former bedroom. Her married London home's whole air of being a cracked cup from which memory, with its reassuring power, had either evaporated or leaked away, made a crisis. And at just this crisis, the letter writer had knowledgeably struck. The hollowness of the house this evening cancelled years on years of voices, habits and steps. Through the shut windows, she only heard rain fall on the roofs around. To rally herself, she said she was in a mood. And for two or three seconds, shutting her eyes, told herself that she had imagined the letter. But she opened them. There it lay on the bed. On the supernatural side of the letter's entrance, she was not permitting her mind to dwell. Who in London knew she meant to call at the house today? Evidently, however, this had been known. The caretaker, had he come back, had had no cause to expect her. He would have taken the letter in his pocket to forward it at his own time through the post. There was no other sign that the caretaker had been in. But if not? Letters dropped in at doors of deserted houses do not fly or walk to tables in halls. They do not sit on the dust of empty tables with the air of certainty that they will be found. There is needed some human hand. But nobody but the caretaker had a key. Under circumstances she did not care to consider, a house can be entered without a key. It was possible that she was not alone now. She might be being waited for downstairs. Waited for until when? Until the hour arranged. At least that was not six o'clock. Six has struck. She rose from the chair and went over and locked the door. The thing was to get out. To fly? No, not that. She had to catch her train. As a woman whose utter dependability was the keystone of her family life, she was not willing to return to the country to her husband, her little boys and her sister without the objects she had come up to fetch. Resuming work at the chest, she set about making up a number of parcels in a rapid, fumbling, decisive way. These, with her shopping parcels, would be too much to carry. These meant a taxi. At the thought of the taxi, her heart went up and her normal breathing resumed. I will ring up the taxi now. The taxi cannot come too soon. I shall hear the taxi out there running its engine till I walk calmly down to it through the hall. I'll ring up, but no, the telephone is cut off. She tugged at a knot she had tied wrong. The idea of flight. He was never kind to me. Not really. I don't remember him kind at all. Mother said he never considered me. He was set on me. That's what it was. Not love. Not love, not meaning a person well. What did he do to make me promise like that? I can't remember. But she found that she could. 
she remembered with such dreadful acuteness that the 25 years since then dissolved like smoke and she instinctively looked for the wheel left by the button on the palm of her hand. She remembered not only all that he said and did, but the complete suspension of her existence during that August week. I was not myself. They all told me so at the time. She remembered, but with one white burning blank, as where acid has dropped on a photograph. Under no conditions could she remember his face. So wherever he may be waiting, I shall not know him. You have no time to run from a face you do not expect. The thing was to get to the taxi before any clock struck what could be the hour. She would slip down the street and round the side of the square to where the square gave onto the main road. She would return in the taxi, safe, to her own door and bring the solid driver into the house with her to pick up the parcels from room to room. The idea of the taxi driver made her decisive, bold. She unlocked her door, went to the top of the staircase and listened down. She heard nothing. But while she was hearing nothing, the passé air of the staircase was disturbed by a draught that travelled up to her face. It emanated from the basement. Down there, a door or window was being opened by someone who chose this moment to leave the house. The rain had stopped. The pavement steamily shone as Mrs. Drover let herself out by inches from her own front door into the empty street. The unoccupied houses opposite continued to meet her look with their damaged stare. Making towards the thoroughfare and the taxi, she tried not to keep looking behind. Indeed, the silence was so intense, one of those creaks of London silence exaggerated this summer by the damage of war, that no tread could have gained on hers unheard. Where her street debouched on the square where people went on living, she grew conscious of and checked her unnatural pace. Across the open end of the square, two buses impassively passed each other. Women, a perambulator, cyclists, a man wheeling a barrow, signalised once again the ordinary flow of life. At the square's most populous corner should be, and was, the short taxi rank. This evening, only one taxi. But this, although it presented its blank rump, appeared already to be alertly waiting for her. Indeed, without looking round, the driver started his engine as she panted up from behind and put her hand on the door. As she did so, the clock struck seven. The taxi faced the main road. To make the trip back to her house, it would have to turn. She had settled back on the seat and the taxi had turned before she, surprised by its knowing movement, recollected that she had not said where. She leaned forward to scratch at the glass panel that divided the driver's head from her own. The driver braked to what was almost a stop, turned round and slid the glass panel back. The jolt of this flung Mrs. Drover forward till her face was almost into the glass. Through the aperture, 
driver and passenger, not six inches between them, remained for an eternity, eye to eye. Mrs. Drover's mouth hung open for some seconds before she could issue her first scream. After that, she continued to scream freely and to beat with her gloved hands on the glass all round as the taxi, accelerating without mercy, made off with her into the hinterland of deserted streets. You've been listening to The Demon Lover by Elizabeth Bowen, the 2021 Molly Christmas Ghost Story, read for you by Dervla Crotty. Funding for this recording is supported by Professor Geraldine Meany and the European Research Council Advanced Grant, Victor, European Migrants in the British Imagination, Victorian and Neo-Victorian Culture. Research is supported by Dr. Katie Mishler and the Irish Research Council Postdoctoral Enterprise Partnership Fellowship Grant, Mapping Gothic Dublin, in association with Molly and the UCD Centre for Cultural Analytics. The Demon Lover was reproduced with permission of Curtis Brown Limited London on behalf of the literary executors of the estate of Elizabeth Bowen and his copyright Elizabeth Bowen. This year's Molly Christmas Ghost Story was produced by Dr. Katie Mishler, Ian Dunphy and Benedict Shepherd Connolly, with Ian Dunphy on sound. Music was by Benedict Schlepper Connolly. Molly's digital programme is supported by Ebo. For more from Radio Molly, including last year's Christmas Ghost Story, visit radio.molly.ie.